I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I'm Andy Rowe and welcome to the very first episode of The Andy Rowe Show. In this episode, I speak to former RAF fighter pilot and Red Arrow Dan Lowes. He's going to tell you about intercepting Russian bombers that were flying towards London, Top Gun School in America, and showing off to the Queen as a Red Arrow pilot. Hope you enjoy the episode. Dan Lowes, how are you? I'm very well, thank you, and thank you for having me. No worries. Well, let's let's get straight into it, because we've talked off air about some of the stuff you've done and some of the wildest stuff you've done. Let's talk about Russian bombers. Just <laughs> what do you want to know? Straight into it. <laughs> I've heard that um, the RAF have to sometimes intercept Russian bombers that are attacking the UK. Tell me what you know. Okay. Yeah. Not quite attacking, but yeah, there's been a, a lot of cat and mouse playing since the Cold War, as you can imagine. And uh, the UK, the US and Russia seem to be the best at pushing each other left and right. So yeah, we um, very often, yeah, we've got two aircraft based in England, two aircraft based in Scotland. They're fully armed. They're manned by men and women uh, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days of the year. And we're there for you know, national standby, really. It's called Quick Reaction Alert. And it's just to maintain the integrity of the UK airspace. You know, we only own 12 miles off the coast. That's both on the sea, but also in the air. So every now and then they, uh, they like to come over and just, just test us a little bit, really. So you're probably once every, you know, once every couple of months. If really? not a bit, yeah, if not a bit, if not a bit more. Um, and they just come down to, they're doing reconnaissance flights themselves and they're, they're also just seeing if we're still ready to go. So, um, yeah, we, we sit there and just wait for them to come. So when you're talking about someone being manned in them uh, mm-hmm. 24-7, someone's actually sitting in that aircraft waiting? Or uh, where, very where close they? to, very close to. So if you can imagine um, your garage at home and you've got your car in there and you're sat in your lounge, if you can imagine the other side of your house had another garage and you sat there with your friend, and if the fire alarm goes off, you just run to your cars. The garage door will be opening as you're running. Uh, you'd probably have four or five mechanics running with you. Uh, and then you jump in the, jump in your car, which is pretty much already started. You've just got a few little switches to, to play with. Uh, and you're taxiing very quickly after. Uh, and um, you're right at the end of the runway. So again, you are very, very quick off the mark um, for any anything you might be called for. Now, we, we go up against the Russians, as I mentioned, and I could tell you a couple of stories about getting alongside of those bombers in a sec, but they also um, were there to protect, you know, everyone in the United Kingdom. So if you can imagine any area of interest, so the capital city, um, nuclear power stations, those kind of things, if anyone's acting suspiciously around those, you know, those jets will be able very quickly to intercept them and make sure that, you know, the people on the ground are safe. How quickly, let's say, so the Russians... Are testing you, right? They are, yeah. There's a Russian plane flying towards Great Britain. How long does it take you yeah. to get airborne from the time that uh, the fire alarm goes off in your house? Less than 10 minutes. Less than 10 minutes? Yeah. And you're up in the air. And, and you're then, gone. Yeah. And then how, how long until you are next to the Russian bomber? It can be, sometimes actually it can be about half an hour, 30 minutes, because they can be quite a long way off the coast. Right. Yeah, we, we can shift. You know, the top speed of the typhoons 
you know, if they really need to push them up is 18 miles every minute. So up towards about 1300 miles an hour. So if you really need to push up, then, then you really can push those machines up. But the problem is if you go through the s speed of sound or through the sound barrier over the, over the country, you probably see it makes the press, you know, it's a massive bang, windows rattle, they can shatter. So we tend to stay what we call subsonic over the land. And then once we're over the coast, we'll put the afterburners in, go, <laughs> go supersonic pretty quickly. I mean, you can go from 200 to roughly 550, 600 knots in about 20 seconds, 21 seconds. Holy so, shit. Yeah, it's not, you, it's not messing about. Yeah. Holy shit, that's yeah. quick. Yeah, it's very fast. Yeah. Wow. So, okay, let's, let's talk through some incidents. Okay. Tell me about, tell me about an incident. With a Russian bomber, tell me about the first time you had to had to had to intercept. Yeah, I had a pretty. Uh, you know, I was quite young. I was twenty three when I made my first squadron. So uh, twenty three, coming on twenty four, so, and that is relatively young. You know, you're with a hundred and thirty million pound aircraft. It's fully loaded with weapons, uh, and you're just nervy because you know it's it's you being sent out to go and intercept these Russian bombers. There's no one else there. You're, you're strapped to this jet by yourself. So uh, we got launched about half three, four in the morning, pitch black. A heart was racing. And at the time, um, the batteries to our night vision goggles. So night vision goggles, you've probably seen them on the on the movies or Call of Duty if, you, if you're playing your PlayStation. You know, when you put it on, it all goes green. Yeah. So when we go flying, we can strap those to our helmet. So we can, at pitch black at night, when we're looking around, it looks like daytime as we're flying. So obviously, you want to come alongside these jets and you can see them. Anyway, we take the batteries out because there's lithium and there's a health and safety case that they could spark off if they're constantly contacted to the night vision goggles. So anyway, I race off to the jet and my heart is beating like, like the, no, other, no other time in my life. Anyway, jump in this jet, we race off and I think, well, I'm all over this now. We climb out and you start, you check in with these air traffic controllers and they start telling you, you know, there's a target on the nose, like essentially he's two o'clock, 30 miles. Like, right, okay, this is pretty interesting. Is that what they say? Target on the nose? Yeah, well, what we actually do is fly a bullseye. So um, you, you, if you can imagine... Uh, if I was to say London, you would know where that is on the map. And if I was to say London, 60 miles west, you in your mind would be able to picture what 60 miles west of London would be. Right. So what we do every day, we pick a different geographical feature so that no one knows what that is. And we call that bullseye. So they'll say target bullseye 06040. And that's saying from that position you and I know about at 060 degrees at 40 miles, there's the contact. So we're kind of talking in code. But my mental picture is being built up as I'm flying towards the target as to where I am, where they are, and where I need to intercept the, intercept the target. Just on that, um, just to go off on a little bit of a tangent, I was speaking to a friend of mine uh, before you came over for the interview, and he wanted to know if um, when you on your single days, um, you and the other pilots, when you're out on the lash in the, um, in the pubs, did you use that same sort of language when you're identifying <laughs> females? Uh, yes, all the time, all the time. And it would be targeted or sorted. There's all these code words. It's ridiculous. But, you know, it's when you get into a group of people that speak, you know, a lingo or a code, it always happens. But the problem is you'd be thinking you're all cool saying, oh, targeted and all the rest of it. You go up and speak to them and then you say you're a fighter pilot. And they, I'm not kidding, 95% of the time, they just didn't believe you. So you, you end up saying you're a binman or you said, oh, I paint the red and white stripes on lighthouses. Uh, you know, we used to say that one of us stuffed and one of us sewed up the rabbits at the racehound, you know, the greyhound tracks that yeah. the dogs chase after you. <laughs> Just something completely random that they'll be like, oh, that's interesting. Because if you went up and say, hey, I'm a fighter pilot, nine times out of 10, they'd turn their back on you because they just thought you're making it up. Did you ever do the Tom Cruise, um, you've lost that loving feeling? Always. I Did mean, you actually? It's, <laughs> yeah, it's, fucking loser. <laughs> 
no. In fact, those have been a couple of times. I think more if it comes on, everyone just stands up and sings it. It's, it's yeah, it's proper cheesy, proper sad, but you know, you got you, you got to play to your strengths. It works. Yeah. yeah. Um. Okay. Let's 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 go back to the Russian bomber. You've yeah. you've gone up. So um, we're now we're now airborne. You're now you know, airborne. You, you're starting to get a bit of composure. You know, things are starting to look reasonable now because it's funny when you put your helmet on. And I don't know if you've seen on Netflix, uh, Drive to Survive. It's about the followers of Formula One drivers. I have. It's an epic series. It is a great it. series. And I, when I watch that, the bit that I love most is, you know, when they're just about to go to the race, you see their eyes and you see their concentration when they put their helmet on. Mm. I can remember that feeling when you put your helmet on, you kind of go into a different space or a different place and you think, right, here we go. So, you know, if I just rewind for a sec, running to the jet, the panic of making sure that you're not the one that lets everyone down by being late off the, off the mark. That's just pure panic and just getting there. But when you've got the helmet on, you're airborne, everything just settles down because now you know you're, you're in your place, you're in your fighter, you're probably at about 30,000 feet. Yeah, you're, you're nearly supersonic, which sounds, all these things sound ridiculous, but that's your happy place. You're cool there. So mm. all starts to calm down. You start hearing where the target is and all the rest of it. So I thought, right, I've got this sorted now. We then start doing things with the airplanes so that they can't see us coming. Uh, and also, you know, they're up there to, to record our, record us. You know, they want to record our, uh, our response times they want to record how we do stuff so they understand our tactics so you know there's a little bit of feigning going on is that part of the reason why they're doing it to, oh absolutely to see how you guys react and what you oh, guys absolutely do. that's all they're doing it for yeah they, they and also you know they want pictures to put back in their media of a british airplane next to a russian airplane to make it look like look they still feel threatened by us and we're still a world power and all these things so it's a huge thing for them to be able to do it and um and they do it very well you know they, there's no two ways about it these guys are sending huge bombers from russia through other people's airspace and it's it's it is a th- you know it's i say it's a threat i don't I, please don't i don't want people running around thinking oh my god you know this has gone on since the 60s you know there's if people are interested in airplanes we had the lightning which is an amazing fighter back in the 60s and 70s now in a typhoon which is three generations of jet on we're still intercepting the same airframes the same russian airframes really yeah the same bombers they just update it it's just you know like triggers broom like they're updating the the cockpits, they'll update the engines, but the actual fuselage and the wings of these airplanes are still the same from the 60s. It's, it's the same thing that's been going on. So the rough, Russian bombers, are, are they a bit shit or what? Are they a bit old or? I t- well, yeah, you could say they're shit up until they start dropping bombs and then they're pretty good, I'd imagine. True. So, yeah, and, and they would never do that. And I genuinely hand on heart think that, but, you know, we can't, we can't be seen to, to just let them walk on in, you know? So, but yeah, so we're racing in on these guys and um, it's You're about in your the happy time. place. I'm in my happy place, yeah, and I'm thinking, right, here's my first Russian bombers. This is going to be amazing. It's probably about half four in the morning now, so it's still pitch black. We're about 150 miles off the northeast coast of Scotland over the sea there, and uh, so there's no cultural lighting below us, nothing. Anyway, roll behind, I put my MVGs on, and all I can feel tapping on my cheeks is the plugs at the end of the MVGs where you turn your batteries on. Uh, and it's at that point I realized I hadn't put, in my panic to get the jet airborne, oh, no. I hadn't put my batteries in. So... I've got no power to my MVGs. So the air traffic had talked to me. It's like, what can you see? And I'm trying to pretend. It's like, oh, I can't see them. I can't see them. They're like, they're, they're literally a mile in front of you. How, and at that point, I could start hearing them, you know, because they, they've got these big uh, propellers on them. So you can start, it's like, and you can hear that. Over the top of your the jet night, engine. Over your top of your jet. Yeah, you, get, you can get in that close that you hear them. And so I knew they were there. I knew they were probably now, probably half a mile, quarter of a mile away. Holy shit. Yeah. So you can hear them, but you can't see them. Well, you could if you hadn't been an idiot like me. Anyway, I just sat there and uh, 
kind of made up a story that you know there's a few technical issues going on and uh we had to wait till sunrise which luckily for me was only about five o'clock so i sat next to them for about 45 minutes and the sun came up but i tell you what when the sun came up they were if you google these things they're called bear hotels so bear h's uh, and it's a russian russian type bomber and they are just this most beautiful silver they've got four big reciprocating engines they're all dirty with oil and they, they've got tail gunners still so there's a guy sat in the back I'm not, I'm not kidding you you can pull up right behind them there's a russian strapped to the back of these in his tail gun position you're know, like the lancasters in world war ii yeah, yeah and you pull up right behind him he's got this massive jumper on it must be freezing in there with these little mitts and he's just kind of waving at you and you wave back and then you pull up alongside because the first meeting it's always a bit awkward the first meeting is that you've been asked to do a job i've been asked to do a job we're supposed to be you know adversaries but i'm here to show you that you can't just roll in our back garden you got i've got to turn you around at some point but you know he's just doing his job as well so we pull up alongside we normally put the jet on its side so kind of like a, we call it a knife edge but if you can imagine like holding it up on the on the rudder so roll it right onto its side 90 degrees hold it on the top rudder just to show him that we've all our bellies full of missiles and we're not here really to mess about so you pretty much unzip your fly and flop it out that, and that's say, it Here's yeah what I've got. <laughs> yeah exactly that's exactly what you do or you know you kind of it's like the dudes down the gym that go in a vest and just stand there kind of <laughs> muscle flexing right so you do quick muscle flex and be like look let's not let's not mess about boys and at that point they normally give you a little bit of a wave they carry on with their mission you just stay with them but it could be quite a while so we then launch um an a330 which is like um an airliner really that's what if you were to fly with Virgin Atlantic or I'm trying to think who else has got them in the UK. A couple of airlines, but they're A330s. They're big old airlines. You know, they take you around the world. Uh, and we've got those with massive fuel tanks in them and a couple of hose pipes hang out the back. And every now and then when we run out of fuel, we'll just leave the bombers, rush over to this jet. We'll get behind the jet. You've got a little probe comes out. You stick it in the hose pipe at the back of this massive airliner. He'll fill you up as you're going. And then once you've got enough fuel, you pop out and go back and hang out with the Russians again. How... Um how does that work? Like, cause yeah. you know, I've seen pictures of you, you, like jets lining up and refueling mid-air. Yep, that must be. A, like, is there much margin for error there, or what? No, not really. No, like you've got to be on it. You know, it's something that you don't get taught to do till you're quite experienced. So you'll have been probably flying in the air force for about four or five years through flying training before you even get anywhere near near doing that kind of um, skill, I would say, or exercise. You normally only do it when you go on a frontline fighter, and yeah, it does take a lot of skill. So. Um, these hose pipes that come out the back, you know, they can sometimes sway about six, seven feet if you're in turbulence. You know, if you're running out of fuel, the pressure. So the on. hose pipe isn't like a fixed metal; it's like a hose. It's it is a hose. Yeah, yeah, and it, they kind of reel them in. They got them under the wings, uh, and then as you turn up, they'll they'll reel them out. So these these hose pipes kind of come out through the sky, and they've got like a big basket on the back. You know, probably about you know three or four feet in diameter. Um. Yeah, and they just kind of hang out the back of the airplane and you'll really slowly bring your jet right behind it and you'll get probably to about two, three feet from it. Um, but the issue is, like with a boat, you know, when a boat goes through the water, you've got the bow wave. Yeah. So when you when a jet flies through the sky, it's got a bow wave, but you just can't see it. So you think you're lined up and at the last minute, your bow wave pushes it out of the way. So what is actually quite difficult is you can't really look at the basket because you have to offset it knowing your bow wave will push it onto your probe, which is you know, about two, three feet to the right of where you're sat. So you come in all skewed and at the last minute it kind of pops up and you, you just kind of walk in the throttles because you have to be super sensitive. Yeah. Plug in, you get a couple of tons of fuel and off you, you go. You ever get that wrong? Oh yeah, loads. Yeah. What, happen, what happens when you get it wrong? <laughs> I mean, I've got, yeah, you, you'll miss and it will, it'll bang off the canopy or, you know, you just, it's a bit of an awkward moment. You have to come back out, reset. 
What's the worst that could happen? Um, guys, in the past, they've ripped their probes off. So the probe that, you know, it's a refueling probe. Um, they've been ripped off. Uh, the hose pipes have come off the back of the airplane and wrapped themselves around your jet. I've had a, one guy who had his whole canopy smashed off because the basket hit it. I mean, these baskets can weigh about a ton or two. Wow. So yeah, if you get it wrong, yeah, it's, it's an uncomfortable place to be. And there's other guys who have sheared them and they've gone into their engines and ripped their engines apart and they've just about you know, limp their jets home. So it is a skill that if it goes wrong, yeah, it can be catastrophic. And you know, that's how we get around the world. So you could be hundreds of miles over the Atlantic, crossing over to the States, refueling, knowing that if you get it wrong, it's, it's not going to end well. Let's, let's talk about time. Yeah. How long are you in the jet for before you have to refuel? And then how long is your sort of longest mission in a jet yep. after you've refueled? So... You could last, again, it's, without being woolly, it does depend. But if you're just going out to do like a marshalling mission, you know, we'll go up to 40,000 feet, certain what's a, a cap, which is essentially, if you can imagine a running track, but 10, 15 miles long, we'll mm. just sit there waiting for something to happen. You know, you can, you'll be up there burning no fuel. You could be up there for two, three hours. Right. When we're doing air combat, so like dogfighting, you know, the, the Top Gun type stuff when they've got all the you know you got the fire come out the back and the reheat and you we'll talk about Top Gun. You so, can do, yeah, you can do all the you can that. do all the dog fighting. Yeah, you're burning. Yeah, you've probably only got about five thousand kilos of fuel and you're burning seven hundred kilos a minute. Uh, obviously, you're you're coming in and out of reheat, but if you left it in, you could run out of fuel. You know, in 10, 15, 20 minutes if you're not careful. But um, which which can happen. So depending on how hard you're fighting. Depends how how much it's just like a car, you know. If you're right, absolutely, yeah. if you're being a Formula One driver and going around the track as fast as you can, you're going to burn fuel quicker than if you're cruising. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, so you can. I would say on average, you'll be refueling every hour and a half to two hours, and then if you're cruising, you're probably refueling every two and a half to three. But oh. it, it's it's a regular thing. Yeah. Regular thing. So let's let's go back to yeah, you, you're fueled up and you you go back out to chase out chase off more Russian bombers. Yeah. Um. What were the bombers doing if they weren't just doing training exercises? Were they ever up to anything else? Yeah, they're, they, they're just here to, they come over just to mess you about. It's just, you know, they're just kind of muscle flexing. So, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll come down. Sometimes they'll, they'll, they'll go low level through um, all the helicopter lanes that are taking all the workers out to the um, oil rigs. You know, just to, just to mess them about, just to mean that they've got to go left and right and it would take them another 20 minutes to get to work. You know, just to frustrate people or... Mm. You know, they'll they'll fly at London to show you that they're at a reasonable range from London that could be a threat, and then they'll they'll turn around. Uh, and so that that I must admit, that's when your emotion does start to get high. Could you pull along these guys over the sea, and everyone's waving at each other, and it's all like, okay, there's a Russian bomber, this is awesome. There's some Russian crew, that's a bit mm. odd, but okay, fine, let's just sit here and you sit next to them two three hours. But when they get close to, it's when you start seeing the mainland. You know, when they're flying at fifteen twenty miles off the coast, and you see Aberdeen. Then you can see, you know, you kind of see Edinburgh. Then you see Newcastle. Then you're coming down the coast. You're like, right, well, you know, that's the wash. There's Norwich. That's London. It's like, actually, there's something quite sinister about seeing yeah. people, you know, here in the UK going about their daily business. You think that that's my family down there. That's my my friends. That's my fellow countrymen. And, the, you know, the cynicism that's going on here is that you actually, you want, you want to show that you could hurt them if you could. And so that's when it kind of, it kind of boils over a little bit there, but they turn around and go home. But that's when it really happens. If you meet someone over the sea and they're just trying to do something, like, yeah, I was really lucky once. I say lucky because it was exciting for me, but I got launched once. Um, again, hundreds of miles off the coast. 
really thick fog. So just like driving down the motorway in thick fog, but only about a couple hundred feet off the sea. So, you know, you're quite low. It's quite, it's quite dangerous. And you're looking for these bombers. Anyway, I got this gap in the fog and there he was. And there was a, they'd opened the back and there was just this Russian dude just stood there and he was just throwing sonar boys out the back looking for our submarines. Like seeing, what? yeah, because they can work out where they are by knowing where they aren't, if that makes sense. Yeah. So, if they know they can't see them and they can't, they haven't got satellite imagery in the port, or they can't hear them under the water, that means there's they can write off where they where they aren't. If that makes sense, yeah. I just thought, yeah, it, I was quite angry at that one. I was like, that's that's a bit cheeky. It's you know? really cheeky. You're just coming over here, just dropping stuff, looking for our boys doing their job. Yeah, and it was quite it was, it, that one was quite satisfying because these guys had taken off at a base up in north uh, northwest of Russia. They'd flown through the night through really poor weather. So all the Scandinavian countries, they've got jets as well that will launch into it. None of them have been able to get anywhere near this guy because the weather was so bad. And so the Brits are like, right, we'll go have a go. And I just happened to be on call. I got raced out there. And I just by chance happened to get this gap in the fog and got alongside him. So uh, that was quite a satisfying job because you could tell who they were. And what we do is we then look at their, their jets, see if they've got any new aerials, see if they're flying a different type of engine. Are they flying the aircraft in a different way? And they're quite sneaky because what they do is when you get alongside them, they know you're looking at them. And what they do is they start this really slow, insidious descent. And what they're, what they're trying to do is disorientate you so you hit the sea. So you've got to really stay on your guard. Really? Yeah. Yeah. They're quite nasty. Yeah. It's really nasty. Yeah, it's, like, it's, see, a, I, it's a nasty little game of tag. I was thinking that like there was this mutual respect between you, but... It, it, as I mentioned, you know that, that first one I told you, you know, yeah. the, the awkward moment where I sat there for 40 minutes in the dark listening to them. They were wavy, you know, they were holding pictures up of like, Russian porn in the windows. Really? Yeah, yeah, it's all good fun, you know, he's just, he's just a, an a Air Force, a Russian Air Force pilot, you know, there's, there's, there has to be something that is similar between us all, you yeah. know, wanting to sign up to fly airplanes for our, for our national air forces, you know, so there, there must be something, no matter what country you come from, that's a You actually have a lot in common. Loads in common. Yeah. He's just been told to fly that airplane, I've been told to, and we've got a different mission, so people respect that. So when they're holding stuff up in the window, it's all quite jovial. Obviously, I mentioned when you start seeing UK cities, that gets a bit serious. But yeah, mm. when, they're, when they're down there trying to bounce you off the sea, then you start thinking, mate, this isn't cool now. Yeah, I'm starting to get a bit annoyed with this. Yeah. Are there, is it just Russian bombers or are there other planes that you have to go up and intercept? For us in the UK, it tends to be Russian bombers. There's, uh, as I mentioned before, uh, with QRA, um, you're also there to protect the country. So, you know, you, you'll see it in the press quite a lot you know if there's been an unruly passenger and they say the Royal Air Force has scrambled to pick up jets you know that that's what's going on because you just can't you can't risk an unruly passenger okay it might just be someone kicking off on an airplane and having a bit of a fight but if that's been aired by the pilot of that airplane to air traffic control there's an unruly passenger you have to assume that it could be as far as the unfortunate events that we saw in 9-11 you know that could be someone now starting to work their way towards a cockpit starting to have the intention to take control of that airplane and starting to use that airplane as a weapon so we have to be there to protect that so what we'll do is we'll get alongside we'll assess the situation we'll talk to the pilot you know have a look i mean we'll pull and when i say pull up next to the airplane i mean like not oh, the wings won't be well the wings will be feet apart so you can see the faces in the windows so you can pull up next to a cockpit and even though you're speaking to someone you can visually assess kind of what's happening in that cockpit so is it the person you would expect to be there do they look under duress? If you can't see it, you won't. You don't build up a situation. You just say, "I, I can't, I can't see what's happening." There. But you, you do get close enough to be able to make a assessment visually of what's happening to that airplane, uh, and that's when you start diverting them from 
major cities, major points of interest on the ground, all the rest of it. Have you ever been in a situation where you've seen things going on in the cockpit? That uh, No, luckily, and I don't think anything has happened that way uh, in the UK. Um, we've had to intercept airplanes that have had unruly passengers, but mainly because they've had a, a drink. Or uh, There was a very famous case recently of a young girl who caused such havoc that the airplane was diverted. I think she actually ended up, I don't think it was a jail sentence, but she got a huge fine, like massive, massive, like thousands and thousands of pounds. Right. So it's a big thing because you will get two jets alongside you instantly. You know, if you miss a radio call or if you got someone on there who's being unruly, like two jet, two armed jets are coming for you very quickly. You'd think um, EasyJet Friday afternoon to Ibiza would yeah. be a prime yeah. target. Or, or, for... any, or any flight coming back from Vegas. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. What you tend to have actually is... Um, yeah, you do get a couple from the south of Spain uh, in the summer months. Uh, you kind of kind of living it up a little bit. The, one of the big issues is um, the night flights. You, most of the mail and the cargo in the UK is flown at night, as you've probably seen. So, as you can imagine, long, boring flights where people are just staring into the darkness. So, there's opportunity there for people to miss radio calls or be a bit snoozy or might miss that. So that's where we get a bit twitchy because. You know, maybe nothing's happening, but you can't you can't let something go that just because you know it's nighttime and there tends to be a an issue at night with people making radio calls. So you know, guys will have jets alongside them pretty quick, and mm. it kind of scales. You know, like we have um, a system whereby if we think something's happening, we'll we'll get in the airplanes, and then the situation sorts itself out. We'll get back out, so we won't have started. Then you can, as a graduated response, as you can imagine, so it can get all the way up to starting, get to the runway, or actually getting airborne. So there's there's a bunch of different gates, as you say, that you've got to pass through before the next you. But I mean, that will happen if you're if you're in an airliner over the UK. And you can imagine how small the UK is and how quickly airplanes travel. You haven't got a lot of time to make a decision, so you're normally airborne alongside them pretty quickly. How um, often does it happen when a, a pilot in one of those long haul flights falls asleep, and how do you wake them up? How, how long? How often do they fall asleep? I don't want to. I don't want to put anyone down for being unprofessional with sleeping. So uh, let's just say they they may right. put a wrong frequency and then speak to the wrong the wrong agency. But I reckon you'll probably get called to the jets. When I was doing this, you know, you get called to the jets maybe once or twice a week, maybe three times a week. You know, it's quite a common thing. Oh. Um, there's a different there's different ways you can wake them up. Pulling alongside them tends to get their attention uh, with a wing flash. Uh, can you imagine you... being a pilot? <laughs> You've fallen asleep <laughs> and you wake up and there's a couple of It's happened. I've RAF seen jets outside your window. Yeah, I've seen it happen. You know, it's it has to oh, probably has shit. to be the most A embarrassing thing ever. But B, yeah, you, you would you would just absolutely shit yourself, wouldn't you? If you rocked up and there's an RAF jet there, brim into the teeth of missiles next to your window just going, Hey dude, like what's going on? Yeah, he's just there to wake you up. Oh, there's different methods. Like you could put the reheat in, which is the fire that comes out the back and just, you know, that kind of startle effect can, can is enough to wake people up or you can put flares out. You know, you've probably seen in the movies. There's these flares that we have underneath the airplane. So if you're getting chased by a heat-seeking missile, yeah, you can pop these flares out and hope that the the seeker of this heat-seeking missile will see the flare as something hotter than the engines and go for that instead of you. Yeah. Just a defensive method. So you can pop yeah. those out because they're quite bright and you know that can that can startle people into waking up. Oh, I bet it does. I guess like people would be interested to know also how strong the RAF is these days because you never. You know, not since the Battle of Britain, really, has Britain needed to go like full noise against another nation. Mm-hmm. If we went against Russia, for example, let's start off there. How well would we go? 
So and I say we because I'm, New Zealand Air Force ain't nothing much. So. Well, you say that actually. We um so quite an interesting story. So uh, the New Zealand Air Force got rid of their jets. So what, yeah. I want to say about fifteen years ago, at maybe. least, yeah, something like that. Yeah, they had Skyhawks. They did, yeah, and and the Skyhawk guys are epic. Like New Zealand fighter pilots are known for being brilliant. So, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Really, really good. In fact, there's there's actually traditionally I don't know if there's one this year, but traditionally there's always been a Kiwi in the Red Arrows, pretty much. Throughout its fifty-five years, how does that work? So what happened was, like, so your your government got rid. There was a really good possible deal on the table. They decided against it, which meant, unfortunately, all the jets had to go. But you know, if you if you watch a Red Arrows display, and we'll come on to talk about that in a bit, you know, we're down at hundred feet. That's impressive. You know, you mm. think hundred feet off the ground doing four hundred and fifty miles an hour. I mean, that's for an airplane. It's pretty exciting. Mm. The Kiwis used to just cruise around the country at fifty feet. You know, that was just what they were used to. And right. in the in the in the Royal Air Force, you're like fifty feet. That is insane. That's what a helicopter will fly. We, we don't have high rises, so we've just got well, that, that's the thing. Yeah, I mean there was nothing to hit to be fair. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, what a sheet, they're only like three yeah, feet yeah, off the ground, yeah, right? Yeah, we can but, get pretty low. <laughs> Swatch out for a fence post. But they um well, exactly. And and so they were really good at low, fast ingressing, hitting targets and getting out unseen. Because the lower and faster you go, obviously the, the speeds, it goes without saying, you need to be fast so you don't get hit. But if you go low, then you can hide from the radar because the radar returns will hit the rock around you and it would hide you within what's called a radar noise. So the Kiwis are epic at flying at low level. So when you got rid of your jets, the Royal Air Force wrote to the New Zealand Air Force and said, hey, look, you've got a bunch of awesome fighter pilots. They can keep their nationality. Do you think anyone would be interested in moving to the UK and flying for us? And uh, loads of them did. So they moved over. So um, loads of uh, Kiwi fighter pilots became Royal Air Force fighter pilots. Um, a lot of the guys went to the Harrier, you know, the the hovering jet they used to put on air. Um, yeah. Because they they tended to have what we called a strike role. So that they're, they're, the, they're the jets that can just like land like a helicopter almost. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 We unfortunately got rid of those a couple of years ago. We've now got the F thirty five, which is super cool. You know, it's that's the new stealth jet that can land on the carrier and all the rest of it. But the Harrier itself was known as the Widowmaker because it was just so difficult to fly. Only the best pilots went there, really. Um, well, not really, absolutely. And a lot of the Kiwis went on to that. A lot of the Kiwis went on to a jet called the Jaguar. Again, low, fast. But what what's happened since, really since the, uh, probably 91, the first Gulf War, you know, the guys there were going in low, fast, and hitting targets. And we were getting shot, you know, people shooting back. Since 91, you're right, there hasn't been many where you've had to go full send. I mean, the guys have gone and done some stuff that, if you were to read, you know, these, these strikes in Libya or, you know, lots obviously gone on in Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, and it's still going on. As we speak, there are jets on operations right mm. now, you know, in those parts of the world. But so our focus has changed, whereas we used to be all about high, fast shooting other airplanes down. The, the whole way in which the landscape has changed in warfare has tended to be striking ground targets and neutralizing terrorist training camps, yeah. taking out um, moving targets because... You know, if you, if you're flying at four five hundred miles an hour and you drop a weapon that's traveling at X amount of miles an hour, and there's a car traveling at eighty miles an hour in another direction, you can imagine that's quite a difficult mm. thing for all those parts to happen. So, as you can imagine, a lot of people that we're interested in are constantly moving. So, how do you, how do you strike those? So, we've moved a lot from that. So, going back to your question about how we fare against Russia, you know, it's it is very different. We used to be set up. We used to have hundreds and hundreds of jets ready for a mass move into you know, the northern plains of Europe and take on Russia. Our whole, our whole shape has changed from that. You know, warfare now is more about, you see it in the press all the time, you know, and it's possibly happening now with the US elections. It's all about cyber warfare and mm. intelligence gathering and disruption. You know, it's, 
it's far too obvious when you start lobbing hardware that someone's mm. been there and done a job when you can hide in the background yeah. and influence the space and no one actually thinks you're there. That's, that's where things tend to be moving. Uh, I would like to think if you were just to go one-on-one, you know, the tenacity of a, a Royal Air Force fighter pilot would be be up there with the best in the world. So uh, I'm going to back us the whole way. Nice. But nice. If, if hundreds of them came over the horizon, you know, we're obviously a much smaller much smaller beast now, the Royal Air Force, than we yeah. were in the 80s and 90s. And so we might struggle pure numbers. But, you know, Battle of Britain, we were miles behind in terms of numbers and we did a job on them. So, yeah, I, I reckon we'd be all right. Yeah, is how how well defended, like how is without giving away too many state secrets, how well defended is is Britain at the moment um, when it comes to if there was an aerial assault? I think we'd be, right, we'd, we'd be well placed. We've got enough there to to sort stuff out. I don't ever think it would get to that. I think yeah. we're quite we're, we seem to be quite safe nation in terms of that. I don't think there's obviously we've got a lot of friends to the east and to the west of us who who would help us out. Um, and you know we wouldn't be there to defend ourselves. So I think you know before we even got anywhere near that, you know it would be incredibly surprising if all of a sudden there was a couple of squadrons on their way over to do us do <laughs> some damage. I think everyone would be a bit upset with that. But um, I, where are you, France? Like, you <laughs> yeah, been? come on, dudes. What happened? Not again. <laughs> What's happened now? You know, um, and we're quite lucky. You know, we are. Uh, our uh, American friends, we do really, you know, they talk about the special relationship and it's, I'm sure it's across the board and all stuff, but over the 16 years I was a fighter pilot and um, all the frontline squadrons I was on, uh, we mainly deployed with, alongside American squadrons. We did a lot of our training in America. Um, you know, I can talk to you about a, a big exercise we do out there every year uh, called Red Flag, which all the squadrons go on. And so, you know, we work very closely. They've even got uh, jets based in the UK, uh, out in Suffolk. So, you know, they've got US air force bases here in england uh, and you know they'd be there to help you out so it's very difficult to say you know it's like these pictures like world war ii of guys screaming out over the north sea you know and doing these amazing jobs. i mean they were total heroes if you think like they took off in wooden airplanes at 19 years old waited to see the hun and as soon as there was a couple of squadrons of you know luftwaffe um messerschmitts they just roll in on them it's like yeah. that is nuts that's like walking around london waiting to see someone that you needed to defend your mum against and going, right, there he is, and just having a fight. It's like, what, what's going on here? Whereas, you know, now it all build up in the press and then there'll be all the politicians sorting stuff. It's just the whole space has changed so much. But it's important that we keep the Air Force practicing as if that's going to happen because if you don't, then you don't have the ability to at least, you know, when our, when our you know, the leaders of our country stand up in these world meetings and talk about, you know, things that can shape the future of the globe if they don't have the perception of power and you get mm. you know it's it's rude to say but there are nations in the world aren't there that we look at and go mm, okay fine you know whereas we stand up you know when boris johnson stands up it's not just the fact that he's got a good air force you know he's got an amazing capability with the submarines he's got an amazing uh, army that he can deploy you know he's got t- um, transport airplanes that could put tanks and soldiers in and get them anywhere in the world in a day you know it would take a lot of planning but he's got that behind him and there are people who don't and they don't tend to get listened to so it's important to stay at a world-class level at all times despite history showing that the last time i want to say the last time a british airplane shot someone down i have to admit i believe it was a a navy jet and it was in the falklands war so the royal air force i think have to doff their cap to the royal navy who were flying harriers in the uh in the falklands war and i think they got an Argentine jet there. So, you know, yes, we haven't done we haven't done that job for a long time, but if you surrender that capability, then I think it's uh you'll never get it back. Selling a little 
or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Tell me more about Red Flag. Uh, so Red Flag, as I mentioned before, is a huge exercise with the American Air Force. So they've, they've done a bunch of studies from essentially World War II all the way through most conflicts. You think like the Korean War, there was the Falklands War, uh, and then uh, the unfortunately the golf balls, but they they ran a study and it was shown that if you survived your first 10 missions, your chance of survival as a fighter pilot grew exponentially. So you were, unfortunately, it's the first 10 missions where you were likely to become unstuck or, or hurt yourself. So what they've essentially done, they've designed a as near life type war scenario out in the Nevada desert that happens once, a couple times a year actually, but we, the, the Royal Air Force gets involved once a year. And it'd be about 60 jets versus 20, 30 jets. So you can imagine a, a lot of airplanes. Uh, and for three weeks, you just live. You know, there's, there's like fake news, which is probably what happens in America anyway. But, you know, you live in this fake world and this, it's a, to- it's a uh, constantly evolving situation. So you live, you're living in hotels out there, but you're going to work every day, essentially on a war footing. So the mindset is like we're, we're going over the horizon today and we're going to go get a job done. And you're working with the best airplanes in the world. You're working, um, normally we go around the world and we, we go on exercises. We can't fully push up what we would like to do with the airplane. Like, I guess like a sports team, you know, when they're training in front of um, uh, crowds of people, you know, they're probably not going to practice their, their you know, match winning uh, free kicks mm. or um, mm. set plays. They'll do that behind closed doors. And that's, that's the same with us. So we work on a level there where you can finally actually, for real, push it up and do all the tricks and you know use the full capability of uh, your weapon system so you know what your missiles will actually do where your bombs will actually fly and all that kind of stuff so they they generate this massive war for three weeks day and night you know you'll be flying you know on missions through the night like you would for real uh, and that is essentially akin to flying your first 10 missions operationally over uh, uh, an actual war zone so when guys finally do deploy They've they've flown the tactics. They've been interoperable with other airplanes. They've worked with other nations. And so when they're there, it would just seem like they've already been there, you know, months before. So are you doing dogfights in this situation? All sorts of stuff. Yeah. What tends to happen is you tend to start out hundreds of miles apart, hundreds of miles apart, uh, and then what happens is you know there's all sorts of reasons why weapon systems will fail, or radars won't pick up targets, or you know you're both doing. Let's say you're both doing ten. You're probably both doing about 10 miles a minute, you know, so you got minutes few. If you're coming at me at 10 miles a minute, I'm going to you 10 miles a minute after 100 
100 miles you know no one could do those maths but you know it will be very quick we're, we're next to each other so you know what will happen is if you're if you're simulating that you're uh, for whatever reason your missiles aren't working because you never want to practice with your kit working fully for you because if you go out there and expect your first punch to knock them out uh, and it doesn't then you're on the back foot so we apply certain rules to how we train so we will say so many weapons today will fail so many systems on our jet won't work and we will, we will literally just turn them off in the jet so you can't use it and it's to be able to fight and operate in a degraded environment and still come out successful so we'll, we'll do all those sorts of stuff and this kind of exercise lets us do that at a world-class level so what that means is that if you've had to turn something off on your airplane that now means that you can't access a system that will be able to hit a target at 40 miles you now have to go to what we call the merge and the merge is where you literally merge with another airplane and you're doing full up dogfighting you know it's it's you versus them it's very close you who down, is them on this occasion is uh, it just... them will be they've so the americans are very good they've got a couple of squadrons uh, they're called the aggressor squadrons and again you know that you find if you google them and see see what they're about they they've got a uh, two or three squadrons uh, of american jets but the pilots spend their time learning adversary tactics. So there'll be a squadron there and a bunch of pilots who know how to execute another nation's tactics or near to. So obviously we, we can see how other people do business and they can see how we do business. And so what we do is we want to fight as near a threat as we can. You know, kind of like a boxer has a sparring partner. Exactly that, yeah. Or it's like... Um, I know it'd be like England playing the All Blacks and hiring another rugby team to learn how the All Blacks play and then playing a full game against another team who are ex executing the All Blacks tactics. So they've actually spent 80 minutes on the pitch playing as close to the All Blacks as they can. That kind of thing. So they've got a squadron there who will execute other nations' tactics and you'll go up and see how our tactics work against them or can we beat them or we got caught out there because you, you're always going to get caught out. You know, it's in that game, unfortunately... It's not you can't just roll in and just roll over someone. It's that's just the nature of of that of that job. You know, it's a, it is a da dangerous, aggressive job. It means that it doesn't always go to plan, and it's not always you that comes out as the winner, unfortunately. So what's good is that you can learn those lessons. And what's great is we've got um, essentially got missiles on the on the airplane that when you pull the trigger, they send a little message to the airplane. And it's all GPS tracked, and when we come down, we've all got these little SD cards essentially, and we can plug them in. And we sit in this huge cinema, like you would go to an Odeon cinema, and every fighter pilot and every bomber pilot and every helicopter pilot that's been in that mission that night will be in this cinema. And we'll all have handed our SD cards in. And on the screen, we get a God's eye view, real time of what's just happened. And so what will happen is it will show you where your airplane is at what time. And it will show you when you pulled the trigger. And it will let you know if your missile flew and hit a target. It will let you see if a missile flew and hit you. Uh, and you can play back the whole war that you've just fought for real uh, and you'll sit there for the next four or five hours going through it bit by bit shot by shot weapon by weapon to work out how you could do better next time or if you did get the kill or if you were killed and why were you killed and we'll work it out from there yeah it's amazing how many times did you shoot other planes down in that scenario and how many times did you get shot down so, come off uh, so i I, exposed? I i had the worst start so i went on a red flag once it was actually when i was on our top gun school we got uh, we went out there and we we were part of the package and we were there we were there mainly in an air defense role so we were going to go out shoot down all the enemy fighters suppress them 
because they've obviously got different airfields where they can take off again, you know, uh, hold them down, let the bombers come in behind us, do their stuff, and then we were going to get everyone out safely. That's our plan. And we go in as fast as we can, sweep everyone out of the way, bombers come in, get, it's like, it's a smash and grab type thing. Mm. I had the worst start, I think, any fighter pilot would ever do. And, you know, it's not, it's not really one to, to smile at, although, you know, when you sit back now, at the time, it, was, it took me weeks to get over it. But there was, um, I was, I was up against this target. It gone in. It was all looking good on the radar. I had a guy telling me over the over the uh, radio com. He's a bad guy. Shoot him. And I took the shot. And uh, it was a miss ID. So it was actually a friendly aircraft. So he would have been on our side. Um, so it was the worst. Oh, it's the worst thing ever. Yeah. And I, I'm actually embarrassed you know, to tell about it now. But yeah, that was the worst thing. And you come down and you come back and you think I would have I would have shot one of. Oh, people! I mean, there was mitigation. You sit down there for hours and work out how on earth you could. Uh, it's called blue on blue. It's like you know, in the fog of war, how was it that we got to a point where you shot someone down? But I mean, it was the most. I had to, I had to take a bunch of beers afterwards. Sat him down. I was like, dude, I'm really sorry. I would would have killed you. Yeah, you know, there was oh, there was a call. To his family. Or yeah, what? oh yeah, there was a call for us to write a letter to his wife. But then I thought, actually, that's just going to psychologically psychologically mess up his wife. That yeah, some yeah, Brit yeah. shot him down. <laughs> and it's like, guys, at the end of the day, it's just a game. But um. Yeah, but you learn those lessons, you know, and then the next few nights, there was stone bonker kills I could have taken. I just never, I didn't pull the trigger for a good week after that, you know. Just, really? Yeah, I just, yeah, because you just think, right, is that... You lost the edge. I lost the edge. I was done. Yeah, I was done. I was like running home. Like, like I was lost landing. lost the edge, Maverick. I was landing full of weapons and guys are looking at me like, dude, you're, you're just a massive pussy. What's going on? Like the engineers, they come up to the jet because they love it as well. You know, all the engineers, you, you taxi in and they're like, oh, how'd it go? You know, how do we get on? Because they're, they're super proud and, you know, it's, they've got the squadron, you know, our tail fins have got the squadron crest on. They're part of the squadron. And when you go away, you know, they silhouette weapons on the side of the jet if they've been dropped and yeah, it's like I came back every day. It's like, what do you do? It's like nothing. My engineer's like, what do you mean you did nothing? Like all the other boys are getting out their jets and high fiving their engineers because they've just taken out like they're all an ace in a night. Do you know what I mean? They've taken like five kills. It, it took me a good old week to get over, but oh, but God. it's really good. And yeah, you end up seeing the most amazing jets. I don't know if you've seen those. Um, it's like the B two bombers. They look like a big flying wing. You know, they're they're getting involved as well. And you're like pushing out and like you're looking stealth, up stealth bombers. Yeah, things. yeah. And they look like a if you Google them, they're called like a B. Well, they are called a B two. It's like a big stingray. Yeah, exactly that. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, they're just like cutting through the sky above you. And they've got the F-22 Raptor, which is their brand new stealth fighter. You know, these things are just mixing in the sky around you. And everyone's just, everywhere you look, there's just fights going on. It's just insane. You're just mixing it up. It's so you could epic. be on the ground just watching dogfights. Yeah, you, you could be. The, the actual training area, if you happen to be in the, if you were there, in yeah. the northern deserts of Nevada. Yeah. But I mean, even, even in the jet, you're just looking around going, what? Sometimes you're like, what is going on? Everywhere you look. There's just jets scrapping, and there's people shouting on the radio who they're shooting. There's guys shouting on the radio; they're being chased. You're trying to help guys out. There's people trying to hit the target. You're trying to work out where the bombers are, and you're like, "Guys, how have you not hit the target yet? <laughs> Let's get out of here!" But it is honestly sometimes it's just absolute so, carnage. So is it like, are you are you ever is it like Top Gun where you're a wingman and oh yeah yeah yeah, I'd be my wingman anytime. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, you, you can be mine. Oh, yeah, you take the jeans and the volleyball net, yeah, and the uh, the so, dog tags, and that wow. all goes down. Man, so yeah, you mentioned you mentioned Top Gun there before, Top Gun School. So is that like the movie? It 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 is yes. As in terms of obviously, there's it's not as Hollywood, and we don't get to train in San Diego. It's more Coningsby yeah. and Lincolnshire, which is just as lovely, by the way. They've got a great coastline too. But the uh, it is essentially we call it the Qualified Weapons Instructor Course because we're Brits and it's boring. But it is our version of Top Gun. And what happens is, you know, you'll choose maybe three or four guys per year. So there's maybe 150, 200 fighter pilots on a particular jet within the Air Force. 
and four of the guys from that 200 will get picked each year to go to the Top Gun school. And over seven months, you go through everything. So you'll go, you'll strip it all back to basics. So I'm just talking like one-on-one dogfighting, then you go two-on-two dogfighting, and you get bigger and bigger and bigger until eventually it's like eight versus, you know, six, 10, and then the red flag missions where it's like 60 versus 40, uh, and it's full on. Uh, And so you have all this training opportunity thrown at you, um, and you do everything the jet can do to the best of its ability. And this course is just dedicated to get four guys absolutely epic on every part of that airplane know all the tactics know all the adversaries tactics so then they get fed back to the squadrons and they become like the beholder of standards if you like and even though there's squadron bosses and there's people there who've maybe done these courses before they're the ones that are relevant immediately and they you know they'll say right boss i think we need to be looking at doing these things for the tactics or i I wouldn't say they're a captain that's kind of it's quite i'm trying to relate it to a sports team but you know that they'll be they're the one that's in the team not in the hierarchy of the team, but they're the ones, you know, within the, uh, the playing, you know, mm. uh, squad that calls the shots, if that makes sense. So right. they'll be the ones who say, I think this guy's really good. Let's work on him. Or there's someone struggling, right? I'll fire with them for a few days, get them up to standard. There's a guy more senior to me. He needs a bit of help or a workout. I'll go do that. So yeah, it's, it is a, an intense, intense course. And you come out the best you could possibly be and you go and represent your squadron. I'm guessing you supported other units in the military and, um, both with Britain and other countries as well. Yeah, yeah, we did. In fact, there's um, yeah, there's one time. Uh, it's so actually, we one time we were in uh, the states and we were supporting um the New Zealand Special Forces on just a training exercise, and the plan was they were going to parachute in at night uh, with some equipment. And they were going to move from A to B, and B was the target, and they were going to take the target. And what, what's and, what's the New Zealand SAS like? Are they a little bit? like hillbilly or what are they, are, they, are, they, are they any good they're awesome yeah i mean i, I i'm not going to speak for them because i'm not in the special forces community and i'm sure you you you've got friends who are in the british uh, special forces that you're probably interviewing but they are known for being a class act they are they are exactly what you would want a special forces unit to be they're mentally resilient they're awesome at what they do and i think if they were coming looking for you, you you'd be pretty scared, I'd, I'd say, <laughs> hillbilly or not. You know, maybe they've got some hillbilly tactics that we need. But, um, but we were on this exercise with them and they were, they were going to take this target out, and, um, which is awesome because, again, you know, there, is, there are levels of man crush, right? And when a Special Forces soldier walks into the room to brief you, it doesn't matter who you are, you, you shut up and you, you sit there and go, oh my God, these guys are awesome. Uh, and he told us what they were going to do. So, okay, that, that worked. So we took off. Uh, and we went and marshaled over this area, waiting for them to turn up. And what we were going to do is look over the target area, talk to them about what we see, you know, come in and, and drop a bomb or, you know, simulate a bomb or strafe the target with our gun if we needed to help them out. But essentially, we we're going to be there. So, and I'm going to parachute in. So uh, I'm laughing because not very long after the mission, you know, they, they're on the back of the plane. They check in with their microphones and the microphones are in their throats and they're chatting away. And uh, he goes, right, we're ready to go. I was like, all right, awesome. Yeah, we're in the right place. Everything's looking so good. The microphones are on their throat, like so yeah, I believe. Yeah, I think that's where it is. It's like wrapped around, so they can need discreet communication when they. The so they kind of just pinch it on the and then. I believe so. Again, you know, there's probably I've seen it on the movies. Yeah. It's probably on the movies. Yeah, yeah, I guess there'll be special forces soldiers rolling their eyes at me because I'm no idea. But yeah, uh, anyway, he was chatting away, and he's like, "Yeah, we're in place. Let's go." I was like, yeah, we're good to go. We got, we got the, the landing area for you. There's no one there. It's secure. They're on the back of this transport airplane that's gonna they're going to parachute out the back of. And he goes, right, we're ready to go. Now, one of them, well, the guy that was chatting to was jumping and he actually had uh, a dog strapped to his chest right now. That sounds hillbilly, but I think everyone's up to it. I was right. I was right. 
Kiwi and, ingenuity, I think they call it. Yeah, yeah. And uh, off they go. And he's like, right, we jump in three, two, off they go. And I'm not kidding you, within a millisecond of saying they were going, like the world in our on our communications probably was just like... <laughs> it was the worst sound. He thought, oh, here we go. It wasn't like static like you would expect to hear on a radio. It was like something incredibly loud and incredibly bad has happened. And so you're like, hey, you know, call sign to call sign, everything okay? And he's not responding. So, like, uh-oh. And it's just like... <laughs> like, you know, everything all right? And then nothing. And then silence. Oh no, he's dead. Like, you know, that's the first thing you think, like, what on earth has happened here? Yeah. Anyway, he just comes straight back on the radio. He's like, uh, you know, me to you. How's it going? It's like, yeah, dude, everything fine. And he's laughing. And this guy's falling through the sky, right? You know, at night. And he starts laughing because the dog that's strapped to him, his tongue has got loose and is like banging away off his microphone, just flapping away in the, <laughs> in the, in the, in the night sky as they're falling out. And obviously he gets into his parachute, comes down and as ever they're awesome and they do their job but i just thought how how amazing that we're sat here with all this equipment these the most fearsome men in the world and the whole mission was put at risk because this this dog's tongue was flapping away (laughs) smashing his (laughs) smashing microphone yeah good times oh amazing let's go back to you and 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 when you first got into the raf because you're quite young weren't you so this is yeah i was How, how, how did you actually get into all this uh well i i grew up dreaming of being a fighter pilot. Oh, we all did. Yeah, we all did. Yeah, that's very true. Yeah, and, uh, you grew, you grew up. You, if you were born in the, anywhere around the eighties, you watched Top you Gun. Watched, yeah, um, uh, I know, I know. And I, I, I was born, grew up in Hong Kong actually, and so I was the son of an airline pilot. My dad and mum had been in the air force. That's how they met. Um, but by the time I came along, that was that, that was that was in the past. He was an airline pilot flying for Cathay Pacific, and so I used to hear him talking to his other pilot friends about their air force days. You know, he used to he used to you know, really imprints itself on my mind. Or, you know, I go to bed hearing stories from, you know, he had a bar and a dartboard outside and him and his mates would talk about flying. They used to be out in Oman or they talk about Jaguars and all the rest of it. So it used to imprint itself on my mind. I used to go to sleep dreaming of this, of this mystical thing of being a military pilot or, you know, these jets that fly low and fast and all the rest of it. And we used to come back in the summer and see our friends or family for summer holidays. And we go to air shows and obviously we see the red arrows and stuff. And I get on an airplane, fly back to Hong Kong where you didn't see any, anything yeah. apart from the jets coming in into the old Kai Tak airport. And they kind of bent around our, our school. So that was another, that was another bit of inspo, I guess. But, and that was it. It was just the, the, the dream formed and it's just everything, everything I did, you know, there's, I've met people now who I probably went to school with when I was seven, eight, nine years old. And they said, I can't believe like you, I even remember you telling me then that you, you want to be a fighter pilot. And just for me, the dream never changed. And so when I finished college, uh, I went to St. George's College in Weybridge. When I finished there, I didn't have to go to university at the time uh, to, to take up a commission with the Air Force. I, I just happened to pass the selection at 18. And so I joined uh, about a week after my 19th birthday. You get commissioned, become an officer, and then you go into your specialized role, which for me was a pilot. And then luckily for me, I survived each course because each time you go through a course, they whittle it down. You know, you go on the first course, all the pilots, they're like, right, you can be a fighter pilot, you can be a helicopter pilot, you can be a, a transport pilot. And then you go to the next course, even though to be a fighter pilot, they take only the top half, the rest can go to become helicopter pilots or transport pilots. Then you get to your first jet and it's like, oh, okay, not everyone's passing that course. What are they testing you on? What, what's the difference between a helicopter pilot and a... And a fighter pilot when it comes to when it when it's when it's out. at that early stage, um, a lot of it's to do with learning curve because you don't get given a lot of time to learn. And actually, over twenty years, a helicopter pilot or transport pilot might be one of the best pilots in the world. But 
they're kind of at the time it's seen as the fast jet role, the fighter role is the best way to go because that's your sharpest pilots, your best pilots, all the rest mm. of it. It might just be that not everyone grows at the same same rate and they don't have hundreds of hours and years to train someone to be a fighter pilot. Right. They need to get you through the system in two and a half years. So you need a you need a good learning curve. You need to be able to almost assess your own performance quickly before you've really been told what you're getting wrong. Try and make a, a very quick decision on how you can fix your own performance capacity is a big thing how much information can you take out take in and still produce a result uh, and these kind of things you know when you're flying like when you drove a car for example when you first learned i'm sure maybe you didn't but i did i had to stare at the rev counter and when it said two and a half thousand revs i then changed gear yeah yeah, yeah you know yeah, what i mean and you're like yeah. oh my god this is nails you know whereas a now you just do it off feel yeah you drive automatically anyway but you know if you were to stop at a red light you'd be like oh oh no i'm gonna stall you would panic and you whereas now if you were driving this morning and said oh how many red lights he stopped that you wouldn't be able to tell me because your motor skill of driving that car now is is just normal mm. and it's how quickly you can get people not thinking about flying so they can actually use the airplane as a system to deliver an outcome so for a fighter it will be to take off that should be sometimes you take off and you shouldn't really think about it if that makes sense you should be worried about what's happening in the mission uh, and the quicker you can do that, then the quicker you you know you are assessed as being of an ability to move more down like the fighter world, for example. Right. But that's not to play down helicopter. You know, you look at our helicopter guys in the air force. You know, those boys are taking in the SAS and the SVS like in their Chinooks, and you know the Pumas are doing some pretty gnarly stuff in a city. Um, uh, Drop offs and pickups for some of the most you know world class soldiers that we've got in the world, and so it's not that they're any worse pilots that you know and i think there's a misconception with that it's just at the time they're assessed to go helicopters maybe because the other people went to the to the jets you know and and that's just how it crumbles when you're on your learning curve part of that learning curve i'm guessing is um being able to uh cope with g-forces yeah yeah so for the person that doesn't know about g-forces on here can you sort of just explain to us like what what it is that um you're having to deal with Yep. So again, just to think about in your day-to-day life, going around a roundabout, you get pushed left and right in your car. So that's lateral G-force. You know, there's the, the, the G-force is moving you left or right due to the acceleration of your car around that um, roundabout. Now, when you're flying a jet, you're going up and down really. So you're being pushed into your seat or you're being pulled out your seat. And so, and with that G-force, um, G-force is making that happen. Now, we're all sat at 1G. So we just walk around at 1G. Everything's cool. But when you start flying faster and faster and faster or driving faster and faster and faster to make a turn, you have to react or you have to be pushing or pulling against the G force. So on the Typhoon, we used to pull nine G. Um, so that's nine times um, gravity. So if you just put that into context, I guess like your, your head, my head, the standard head, you know, is a stone as upset as some people might be at how heavy their heads are. That is mm-hmm. just general. The average is a stone. So, when you go around a corner in a typhoon, your head weighs nine stone. So your your neck muscles are working really hard just to keep your head upright. So you have to be very, very controlled with your head movement so you don't rip the muscles off the back. In the back of your neck can rip quite easily or you, know, you can you can really, really hurt yourself. There's guys that I know who have unfortunately hurt their neck flying jets, pulling those Gs that can't fly, fly jets anymore because they've damaged their neck muscles too much. Really? From it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a big thing. Um, but it's also just pulling all the blood away. So, you know, as you're coming around a corner, 
And you can play with it. It sounds ridiculous, but you can play with it. You know, you can be in a corner at about 3, 4G and the blood starts draining from your head at that point. So uh, if you ever see a picture of a fighter pilot, they've normally got what we call G-pants on. They're kind of a, uh, a green cloth type of jean that they put over their flying um, coveralls and a jacket. And what happens is that plugs into the side of the seat. Then as you pull G, a little valve will open and air, you know, bypass air from the engine will come in, fill up a hose and it'll fill up your trousers essentially. And what that's doing is it's gripping your muscles so tight that blood can't leave your head really and, and get itself pushed down. Because it, as, as the G builds, your brain and the blood in your brain starts to drain because it's getting pushed down by the, by the G-force. So when you're going around the corner, uh, it's quite embarrassing to do it when you're not in a jet, but you're tensed up with all your muscles so that you're keeping the blood where it can be. And you're like, <laughs> short, sharp breaths. You can keep your body tense as much as you can to keep Why the you blood pressure short, up. Sharp so it keeps the blood pressure high, and it also means that you can keep your your muscles tensed, and you can keep the blood in your head. Because what happens is, as you come around the corner, if you're quite relaxed, as I say, it's a bit silly, but you can play with it. At three, four G, you start to get speckles. Yeah, and then you'll start. Then everything starts to go. I, I get that sometimes after I've tied my shoelaces. But up. That's it. Exactly. That. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Maybe you should start breathing <laughs> like that. <laughs> yeah. There you go. Uh, and then what happens is you'll start to get grey vision. And then you start to get what's called tunnel vision. So what happens is uh, you can just see the world coming in either side of you. So um, you can't see left or right until you just see in front of you. Then you give it a squeeze and all the blood goes back into your eyes and into your brain and you can give see what, again. You give your body a squeeze. Yeah, you give a big squeeze or a big... Uh, and that builds a pressure and it pushes the blood back into your brain, into your eyes and you can see again and then you relax and it all drains out and you can go. So if you... It sounds awful, but if you're bored, you know, if there's sometimes you and me were marshalling over the North Sea... Right, ready for a dogfight and you've got some issues said oh mate give me a couple of minutes and we go around in circles just waiting for you you know just like before we can start sparring sometimes just a bit of waste of time just kind of play around with the g and just just get used to it really but as you get up to like eight nine g you can't mess around with that as soon as you get eight nine g you know you've got your jacket suppressing into your chest your your jeans are inflating and gripping your your um your quads and your and your calves and it's just forcing the blood to stay in your head to keep you conscious for the amount of time that you're suffering that G-force. And then you back it off, you come out of the G-force, and then you're straight back in it again. Are there ever incidents where guys you're flying with, um, they're, they're blacked out? Yeah, they have. In fact, I've, I did have one myself where I, unfortunately, I, I didn't react against the G-force quick enough, uh, and I, I totally blacked out. Luckily for me, I was pointing upwards. So when I came around, I was I was going skywards. But I pulled, pulled some G, and I, I reckon seconds few, I was in a garden, age five, kicking a football with my mum. And I'm currently, for real, in a jet doing 500 miles an hour. Luckily, doing about 20 degrees nose up, so not racing towards the ground, which can be quite scary. And then slowly, obviously, as you relax, the G-force, because you're relaxing on the pool, because your body's now essentially unconscious, your pull on the stick releases. The blood is pushed back into your brain and you come around. And it took me a good couple of seconds to work out where I was. You know, I was... In my mind, I was kicking a football in a sunny garden with my mum. And then all of a sudden, I'm, in, I'm sat in this fighter jet doing 500 miles an hour going skywards. And it does take a good, right, where am I? I'm here. What's going on? Where's the ground? And it, it's a really scary experience. And yeah, it can catch you out. And unfortunately, I think, um, well, we know there's a, the, the, a famous incident with one of our good friends in the Reds, a guy called John Egging. And he unfortunately came in to land one day. And as he... Uh, did this run in and break which is a very famous way fighters break they run in to land and then they they peel away from each other and unfortunately at that point uh, it's assessed that maybe he uh, wasn't able to react to the g-force that quickly uh, and unfortunately he was um 
he left unconscious because of it, and that that was the result of the crash, which unfortunately took took his life. But he, you know, God. a top top dude. But as as you say, you know, that guy himself was an excellent Harrier pilot, the one I talked about before. So he he'd flown the best jet. He was one of the best pilots in the Royal Air Force. He flying the hardest jet to fly, and then he was flying in the Red Arrows. So it just shows you, even at all levels, if it's one of those things you just constantly have to respect because it can it, it really can bite you very quickly. So G forces aren't something that you just become. Your body just becomes like it's not like altitude training where exactly. it just adapts yeah. to it. You always have to be on your guard with it and and be treating it like it's your first time. Oh, 100 percent. You have to. You, if you don't respect it, it'll bite you straight away. You know, you know it's coming. What 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 experience does lead you to is um, when you first start, when the G starts to build, you start tensing against the G. The more experienced you come, you actually find yourself tensing before you've even turned. So your body's already G'd up, ready for the, no pun intended, ready for the is G to come. Is that where it comes from, G'd up, is it? I don't know, actually, that's a good point. Let's, we'll Let's say yeah. We'll yeah. say yeah. Y- yes, it is. Yes, it is, yeah. Facts you learn And if it's show. not, I've just come up with it, so there we go. <laughs> right, yeah, so the more experience you get, the more you, you're getting ready for this. You'll be ready for it. And, and you know, and, and time in the team, you know, when I was fighting for the Reds, you know, because you know what's coming up, you know, it's a set show, there's set moves, there's set, you know when the G's coming, you're already braced up for the G before the G even hits the jet. Yeah, I uh, see. So, you you mentioned like flying in Top Gun earlier. You went back and you were an instructor, weren't you? Uh, yeah, I did. Yeah, so I finished that. I was super lucky actually. I went to a squadron after that, which we were the research and development squadron for the Air Force. So, if there was a new weapon or a new, which wasn't me by the way, but if uh, there was a new weapon that was going to be on the airplane or a new software standard or a new anything, the test pilots would go and fly it, make sure that it was safe to actually fly. You know, the, the aerodynamics of this particular thing on the airplane would, would make the aircraft safe to fly. Uh, and then I was with a team of scientists who would then go and, if it was a missile, fire it. If it was a bomb, drop it. And, you know, we had all the telemetry data going on and they'd sit down and work out if it would, you know, can we hit it this way? And we designed all these different types of profiles and we spent months up in the Mojave Desert in California uh, just basically dropping loads of bombs you know they'd pull out old tanks and they'd pull out old uh, presidential convoys and you know they design small buildings you know that would represent what could be possible target sets in the future and we just go and blow them up or we shoot them down and uh, sit down there and go yeah that one's really good or no nah, that's a bit rubbish don't go with that one wow so yeah i spent that i spent a good two three years doing that uh, and we did a lot of that a lot of that abroad uh, and then when i was at home in the uk on our on our squadron if if it was a quiet day or you know quite a few months, then I would go over to the top gun school and, and instruct there. So take take these top top dudes from from the frontline squadrons who are being taken up another level, uh, and just be there. You know, I say teach them. You know, these guys are already at the top of their game, and actually they they tended to teach you a lot. But mm. it was just teach them the structure, how to get themselves to a level that they operate at a world class level the whole time. And the big thing with that, and it's something I talk about a lot outside of work, and something I'm getting into a lot now, is the art of the debrief. You know, you can go and brief talk about what you want to do you can go and execute but there's no point and this is one of the things we live by in the red arrows there's no point getting airborne again to make the same mistake there's you might as well just stay at home so it's from landing is working out we planned to execute this way the result was this how why what and that's the stuff that on the on the top gun school you get very good at very quickly because you can see other people's performance and change it instantly right yeah so how did this all set you up for the red arrows because you didn't you know, you, you got to the top, you know, you're, you're top gun, you're instructing, you're blowing things up, you're <laughs> testing new weapons, doing all this. But um, 
red arrows. You, you tried to get in there and it took you a while, didn't it? It did take me a while, yeah. I think maybe I just kept knocking on the door. Learning curve was too, too sharp. <laughs> yeah, I had a negative curve. That was the issue. Yeah, um, yeah I, I just, I, I found it quite a challenge to get in. You know, it was a dream. Uh, there's certain uh, standards you have to hit to even be able to apply. So they don't come looking for you. That's one thing I think is really cool with the red arrows. They don't go looking for the, the, the pilots they want in the team. They expect you to go and ask for the job over a set period. So once a year, there's a, mu- a couple month um, period where if you think you have made the grade in these certain areas, you can apply to the team because they want people who want to be there. That's the that's the first thing. They obviously will then whittle that down to get the pilots they want, but they want people in the team who want to be in the team who aren't just there because they're the best. Um, and I think that's really cool because what that happens is you know that that tends to eradicate egos quite a lot because people are there for the the outcome as opposed to who they are and i think that, that that's quite important uh, but yeah so i i um you need 1500 hours flying fighter which i just got you need to be assessed as above average against your peers on your annual review uh and then if you've got those and be of a certain rank and once you've got those you can apply so i applied i went and when you're there you are in awe. well i was i was in awe even though i knew most of the team I was just in awe of them. You know, these are the these are the guys doing the job that A, I loved. B, because they're doing it, they're kind of my heroes now. You know, it's like kind of trying to get in the first 15 mm. at school and you're training with the first 15. And you're like, oh my God, these guys, they're on it. You know, never break into this. So, so these guys are the best of the best, aren't they? In that role. Now, yeah. I, I'm always going to tell, I'm always going to back up. You cut me in half, hopefully a little red arrow pops out. You know, if I look back over my 16 years, you just mentioned, I've had a great time. You know, I flew... At the time, our latest fighter, I went to the Top Gun school. I went to an awesome squadron that just blew stuff up and then became a Top Gun instructor at times. So that was great. But if I was to say best of those 16 years, it would be in the reds. If you cut me in half, I, I, I'd hope the little red arrows flag would pop out, you know. And so we want to say we're the best of the best. But I think that's what's quite special about the team is that I know fighter pilots on the front line who can fly airplanes better than I would ever be able to dream of flying airplanes. And I know there's guys in the team who would also say that there are guys in the team that are outstanding. You watch them do stuff with airplanes. You just think, how on earth have you managed to do that? Even though you feel you're, you're in the same team as them operating the same level. But I think what's special about the Reds is that, yes, they, they are good. They are good pilots. Individually, they are excellent pilots, but they're not the best in, in the Air Force. They're just the best that can work in that environment together. And that's really important because when you're flying at 450, 500 miles an hour, 11 feet off each other's wing, you know, you're underneath each other, you're next to each other, above each other. You have to have ultimate trust that the guy next to you isn't going to ruin your day. And you also have ultimate trust in yourself that you're going to ruin their day. And and that that builds. And that doesn't build normally always from having the nine best players. It's the nine guys who are excellent, but they've got more to them than just raw flying skill. Mm. Uh, and that's what the process does. And that's probably why I didn't get in the first time really because you get exposed to a week training camp with them, with the team, and you fly in all the different positions. You go for dinner every night with the team. You have breakfast. In fact, breakfast, lunch, dinner. You're, you're in the team for a week, essentially. Uh, you just get in the back seat. You have a formal interview. Uh, there's a couple of little fun things in there, little social events, as you can imagine, during the week. Uh, and then a flying test. Uh, and then at the end of that, they they choose two or three guys. Uh, and if I was to look back and be fair on myself, I think my first time, I was just overwhelmed. You know, I wasn't myself, so... 
you know, I'll probably just that annoying. I'm sure the guys, because I've found it myself when I was in the team and guys trying to get in, you're just trying to make a cup of coffee after a trip and there's a guy trying to get in the team. It's just small talk. And they just, and that, that would have been me. I'd have been small talking everyone and everyone like, mate, will this guy just shut up and, and sit down? Like, yeah, we know you want to get in the team. Just yeah. <laughs> fuck off. Uh, but that kind of, that's kind of what happens. And I just wasn't myself. And, and, and guys can see that. Guys can see that. Um, and there's no, there's no way in which um, you, know, you get counted out of the application. You just have to wait a full 12 months before you can apply again. So in my first year, I went, I wasn't myself, um, which was a huge lesson that I learned uh, in how I conduct myself uh, you know, moving forward. The second year, um, unfortunately, I talked about being on the, uh, one of the Top Gun grads. Now, they didn't have enough guys who graduated the course on the airplane I was flying at the time that year and they have to maintain a minimum amount to be able to keep keep the aircraft or keep the the whole force at a certain war footing so unfortunately I was removed from the process the second time around because I didn't have enough guys who had passed the course and then the third time third and final time luckily I'd sat there for two years waiting for another chance to to apply to these guys and I was like right do you know what if it doesn't work for me this time I don't know you know I was getting on with life I was like maybe this is a dream that's escaped me. So, and I think because I had that, I went, I was super chilled out, you know, I was respectful, but I just mm. thought if it doesn't work out this time, it doesn't work out. And I think that that worked in my favor and that was it. So it took me three knocks on the door, but I think eventually they just got bored and let me in. And then you, once you got in, you, you start touring all around the place, don't you? Where are, the, where are the, some of the highlights of some oh, of the places? You're... We were super lucky. So I got in. We, you know, first, first off, uh, I was just a spare pilot flying jets for the actual team. So we went through India down to Malaysia. The team then went on to China. I wasn't part of that. But when we came home, I joined the team fully. Uh, we did six weeks, that, uh, six weeks that year in the Middle East. So, you know, Saudi, we, we flew through the Petra Valley to help Jordan um, promote its tourist board. We went all the way through Saudi Arabia, Bahrain, Qatar, Dubai, Oman. We went and did a display in Karachi uh, to celebrate their 70th anniversary as a country. You know, we went everywhere. That was amazing. Uh, second year was the 100th anniversary of the Royal Air Force. Mm. So we did, I don't know if you saw it, but there was 100 airplanes flew, 100 airplanes flew down the mall uh, and we capped that off. And that was just insane. In fact, in front of us was 26 typhoons, those jets that I mentioned I flew, in the shape of a 100 in the sky. And it just looked insane but we were running in never forget we were running in and we could see london in front of us you know it takes about 25 30 minutes to get to london from lincolnshire because you just you're shifting but you know we were still on the ground when the first jets were going over buckingham palace because you imagine the helicopters are only doing 110 miles an hour yeah and then there's all these different types of jets and we're going we're coming through at like 350 400 miles an hour so with the speed differences obviously you can imagine there's loads of timing issues there so when the first airplanes were going over, we were only really just taxiing out in Lincolnshire. That's how quickly we can get down and get in the train. But we were running in, never forget, like 26 jets. You think, right, we're only 30 seconds behind them. We Surely we can see them, see London, and you just can't see the jets. Like, where are we? We're all like looking at our maps. And our boss, he's um, Squad Leader Martin Pert, who he, he excellent, excellent leader. He was looking out the front. He's like, guys, can anyone see 26 typhoons? Like, no, sorry, boss. Like, and we're all staring. And then everyone's starting to panic. Like, uh-oh, have we got the wrong time in our GPS? Are we late? Like, yeah, you know, are we in the wrong part of the sky? Have we turned in the wrong part? Like, the first thing you think, it must be us. And we carry on pushing into London. And the boss, we refer to Red One as the boss. The boss is like, guys, you know, he's talking to different guys. Like, what does your GPS time say? And it says, this time boss is like, yeah, match, so does mine. Uh, what does your GPS time say? It says, boss, it's, it's cool. We're, we're in the right place from the right time. 
Right. And then I'm not kidding you, about our two o'clock running in on a slightly different angle with 26 jets in a 100 in a right hand bank turn. And they've rolled out. I, I get goosebumps telling you about it now. And they just rolled out there in front of us and in front of us with this hundred spell out in the sky you could see the whole of bank you could see the gherkin and you could see the um uh the london eye and then you could start to see the mal and buckingham palace and i'm not kidding you from well actually from the east coast but stratford around the olympic park in you couldn't see any tarmac for people and flashlights and it was just insane. And then, yeah, straight down. And then we get over and then you all start buzzing because you hit all the turbulence off the buildings because there's all different heat everywhere and everyone's battling around. And you're in the turbulence of 26 jets in front of you. And then, boom, there she is. There's the queen stood on the balcony over the Buckingham Palace. And the boss screams for the smoke to go on. Oh, it's amazing. So that was probably... What does the boss say? What does he say to get the smoke on? Uh, as we're running in, yeah. so he'll be like, Red, smoke on, go. And so everyone pumps their smoke on at that point. And then as you're coming down, and that just primes all the system. And then he'll shout, color on, go. And on the G of go, you change your color, red on the right, blue on the left. And uh, that's when you see the famous red, white, and blue of the boys streaming down the, streaming down the mall. Fuck yes, that's cool. You're coming down the mall and obviously you're buzzing. And the boss, the boss is happy. You know, we're in the right place, right time. There's the mall is just packed with people and you can hear it in his voice. He's like screaming. He's like red, smoke on go and it gets everyone g'd up you know and you stick the smoke and you look around and everyone everyone's like banging the canopy at each other just to give each other a little bit of a it's like you're know, a, a rugby team scoring a try and everyone patting each other on the back you can see everyone like banging and then when he shouts color on go that's that's the minor panic moment because every jet can turn on red white or blue so you're running in and you're like i'm blue i'm blue i'm blue i'm blue i'm blue and it's three different switches and it's so easy to obviously put red on and so you could be on the left in, in oh, every jet every jet has the has every color in that correct and you yeah. have to pick the color when correct. you're in the jet yeah which sounds super simple right you've got three colors red white and blue you've got three switches i can tell you now having done it embarrassingly when he says color on go it's so easy to put a red on instead of a blue and just mess the whole thing up have you done everyone. it oh yeah 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 embarrassingly so yeah. <laughs> when, when if there's something that's gone wrong i've done it yeah, it's, when did you do that <laughs> um we did it at a um, at Farnborough, which is a massive air show. Um, in fact, I tell you what was even more embarrassing. We went away on this seven seven week camp. Like in the Reds, you don't get your red flying suit until you've passed your final check ride. So you do the whole thing in a green military flying suit. You only get the coveted red overalls once you pass the final check after seven months of training. You've got the red overalls here, haven't you? Yeah, yeah. Let's get our producer Tristan to bring the red overalls over. <laughs> there you go. Oh, amazing. So there you are. That's that is a red arrows flying suit, and you only get that once you've earned it. So, on the on the uh, last flight of the season, the next day you go back into work in a green flying suit because you're another team now. Um, you know, you're not the twenty twenty team anymore. You're the twenty one team, and so they haven't earned their red suit yet. So you'll take that off, hang it in the wardrobe. And that's it. You'll forget about it for seven months. You only wear this once you've passed the um, all the training and the and the ticks for the for that season, which is quite cool because. Another amazing thing with the team that some people don't know is that we change three pilots every year and there's nine of us. So we change a third of our workforce every season. So that um, must make it a bit harder when it comes to trusting the team. And- it makes it super hard. Yeah, you have to break it all down again. Yeah, And what's, what's, what's really hard is that maybe the day before you could have been displaying for, in front of 250,000 people on the south coast of the UK on top of your game, the team's firing, everyone, they're making the right calls at the right time, they're putting the right color smoke on at the right mm. time, uh, and it's all, it's all running on the money. A week later, 
your team's completely changed. You've got a, a 33% of your workforce is just gone. Why do they change it? To keep guys on the money. So the, the first... The uh, first years, as we call them, will be right next to the boss up the front because they've got the least amount of movement to, to worry with and, and albeit complex in the grand scheme of things, the most basic um, formation references to hold on to. And they kind of just set the base up for everyone. They don't have to move as much. And then after a season, they'll get moved to a different position. After the third season, you get moved further back through the formation because it gets harder. Mm. Uh, and the bottom line is complacency. You know, again, talking about driving a car. Oh, so, so it's not it's not that someone gets a certain amount of time in the red arrows and then they moved on. It's like we're going to cut three of you this year, no matter what. Uh, well, yes, each pilot will only do three years. Oh, okay, so there, there, there are some exceptions to that rule, and some guys have done like five, six seasons, so even more because of extraordinary circumstances. They may have gone and come back, mm. or unfortunately, we've had the old hiccup here and there with the odd incident, accident, or personal injury uh, and so those pilots need replacing so maybe an old guy will come back because he's already been trained to that level and can pick it up a lot quicker than someone who's never done it before mm. uh, but you'll do one season in one position the next season in another position your third season in a final position and then leave and that's the traditional um, footstep of a red arrows pilot and that's just because you get your normal is so far beyond what it should be by the end of the season that it, it's getting to the point where it could be unsafe to leave you there so if i was to fly in a certain position my first couple trips my eyes would be as wide as saucepans you know you're nowhere near the airplane that you really should be you know you're well out of position because you can't bring yourself to be any closer even though you will be eventually until you trust in your own ability and and the system Uh, and then i'm not kidding you like that you'll be towards the end of the end of the season i mean you'll be mid-show and again, like driving your car, you're not thinking about what revs you are. You're thinking about actually, I don't quite like this tune. I need to change the mm. change the music. Or uh, so you're yeah, too comfortable. The miss has really annoyed me zone. this morning. Yeah, and you'll be flying, thinking right, uh, right. We've got about five or six maneuvers left. Then we need to reform, get back. Right, when we land, the first thing I need to do is this. And then I'm gonna and you, and then you have to like give yourself a bit of a shake and go, dude, you're you're upside down in a loop in the middle of the show here. Like, concentrate. And that's just because you're like someone's abnormal, and what used to be your abnormal has become your normal. Mm. And so to stop that happening, you get as much as they can. They move you to different positions each season to eventually, you know, you kind of slide off the back of the formation and you're done. Uh, and so I was three, five of the nine. So I started at the front left next to the boss. Then I moved to the outside of the diamond, right to the back and then and then done. So the more experienced guys are on the outside. That's right, yeah. So when you're, when you're in formation and you're flying, who's calling the shots? Like how, and how does, how does that all work? It's all coming from red one. So it's all done off hearing, essentially. So what happens is when you line up, uh, I don't know if you've done much sailing, but uh, do you know if you go into a harbour at night, you line two lights up, and if you can only see one light, then you must be in the right position. Does that make sense? That makes sense. So that's essentially, you're essentially formating on that light. So if you if you weren't in, in direct line with that, you would see two lights. Uh, and so every different position that we fly in the Red Arrows, that's what you're doing. And what we do is we mark points on the airplane that we want to line up for each different move uh, and what we'll do is we'll talk about it on the ground we'll say right you need to line up the wingtip with the nose uh, at the front and on the back you need to see so your wingtip was someone else's nose 
their wing. So because you're next to them, if you can imagine, you're looking at an airplane. Yeah. You want to be sat. So there, if you were sat to the left of their airplane, you could see the left of their their wingtip on the left is yeah. touching the nose of their airplane. And if you if oh, that was happening, you knew you were in the right position. Right. So so, so if the if the if the the corner of their wingtip was lined up with the their nose, yep. you were in the right position. Correct. Right, because you can only see one light. That, Does that make sense? Yeah, 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 the same. You're lining two points up to make one point. Absolutely. Got yeah, you, that's got exactly you. it. And that's and that's essentially, albeit to a very difficult level, that's what a red arrows pilots do. And they've got different references on the on the plane next to them that they need to line up the whole time to stay in the right position. Right. And obviously, there's you know there's you know I. I wouldn't be able to count, but I would say 20, 30 different references because, you know, you can imagine every time you move position to another shape, the airplane next to you is going to be in a different position to make that shape look right. You would have to pick another reference. So we spent a lot of time uh, in the winter months, sat on the ground, just with the jets in the hangar, calling, right, the next move's Concorde. You know, two, what are you looking for? And two would walk up to the airplane in the hangar and say, I need to put this part of the airplane on there. So, okay, come and sit on the floor, make it look like that. And they'd put a bit of paper on the floor to say that's where they think it is. And then we get the next pilot up to go and say, where do you think you need to be for Concord? And they put a pen and paper on the floor. And we'd look on the floor where their pen and paper were. And if, if even if there were a couple of inches out, like, well, you guys are flying off the wrong references. So we put the pen and paper together, make them stand there, and they could visualize what their reference now is. And now we know that when they get airborne, they'll be both be looking at the same position on the airplane. Whereas before, maybe they had half a foot foot difference of of acknowledge of what their reference should be so what's the pen and paper bit are they drawing the oh thing? sorry um it could be a glove a helmet i should probably explain it better so if it was you and i uh, and we were going off to fly this maneuver we'd go to the hangar and i say right we're going to be in concord as i mentioned before you would go and stand in the position where you you're, you would physically be sat in the air right. and you'd put a pen on the floor or a, a, I don't know, a, a bit of paper a helmet a glove whatever on to the floor symbolize, symbolize, to symbolize where you think yeah. you should be yeah I would then not look at that. I would then look at the airplane again, see where it is. And I would then put my piece of paper or pen or whatever on the floor. And then we'd look down on the floor and see where you'd put your bit of paper and where I put my bit of paper. And if they're in the same place, like, right, great. We obviously know that what we're looking for. But chances are there's probably half a foot foot difference. So right. we'll, we'll put them together. You and I will both stand there on now the corrected position and work out what reference we're looking at. And that's how the show builds. And then as it gets more complex... You start looking at different references and then references on the move and it's all about cadence and then we'll start moving together. So you'll be on the left, I'll be on the right. So we need to move, you know, 60 feet backwards, but at the same time. So we need to start, sounds ridiculous, but you and I would sit in the crew room over a cup of coffee and practice counting to 16 together because, you know, you might say three at a different tempo to me. You know, so we'd be like, right, you ready? Go one, two, three. And we would say it out loud together so that you and I would then synchronize how we count. Because then when we're in the airplane, you'll be 50 feet away from me. But I know you're counting at the same speed as me. So from the ground, when people look up, they'll see the formation moving back in exactly the same uh, pace because you would move back and forth based off timing reference. See, I would have just thought you'd have technology that would take care of all this. <laughs> How old are these jets? Yeah, yeah you'd, you'd like to think. Um, that's, what, that's what's special about the, the team. And that's why I think I love it so much and loved it so much. Is that, So the jet I flew last year uh, first flew uh, in 1971, 1972. So the jets oh, are good, 40, 40 odd years old. And they still are. But you know, the, if you were to ask any Red Arrows pilot, you know, what would you replace it with? I truly think you would struggle to get an answer out of any of the team. We love those airplanes. You know, they Every season they're taken apart in the um in the hangar. Uh 
down to all the, you know, literally down to nuts and bolts, which as a pilot is quite, when you walk into the hangar in the morning and you see how small the bolt is that holds the wing on that you're about to go and do eight, nine G with, yeah, it, you just, you, it's not worth looking at. So these jets are stripped back. We've got 120 engineers uh, who support the team. They're called the Blues. You know, they're the, they're the, they're the, they're the true heroes really that you don't see. You see nine jets, sometimes see nine pilots if you meet them on the ground. What you really don't see is 120 engineers who are working day and night to make sure those jets are good to go. And so, as I say, in the winter, they strip them all back. They make sure there's no cracks. They replace bolts if they need to. So, yeah, the shell of that airplane is 40, 45 years old, and, and quite a lot of it will be. Um, but the, the safety-critical parts clearly are, are brand new and kept up to, right. uh, up, to, up to modern standards. But there's no automatics. There's no autopilot. There's no auto throttle. There's no fly-by-wire, which you get in these modern jets. It is pure hand-eye flying, which when you get it wrong, there's only one person you can blame, and that's you. But when you get it right, you get such satisfaction from it because you have just manhandled an aeroplane in doing some of the most extreme flying you could do with that aeroplane to the best of your ability, and it's come out with a great result. And so, yeah, job satisfaction is incredible. When you're doing overseas shows, is there because there's other countries that have got a similar thing, isn't there? Yes, there are, yeah. Can you talk me through, like, are there rivalries between the countries? Do you guys have similar planes? Uh, we, there is another, there is a, the Saudi Arabian team use the same jet as us, as do the Indians, kind of. They've got an upgraded version. So there are teams that fly the same aircraft, and, you know, they, they have got some immaculate displays. And so, yeah, you watch them sometimes and go, oh, actually, we should do that. But you also do watch them and go, hey, wait a minute, we did that last year. You see, you can, you see people stealing stuff from each other. Um, I'm a fan of the European style of display flying. So, you know, you look at the French, the Italians, uh, the Croatians got a great team. The Swiss have got a great team. Uh, I think we're we're closest to the French. We are most things, I think. And, you know, they've got a fantastic team and their attitude to what they do is is awesome. You talk about competition. There's no, there's no like, um, display team World Cup where you get given the trophy of trophies. Every now and then an air show might hand something out to someone and say, hey, look, you did, a, you did a really good display this weekend. Pat on the back and go. But yeah. It's not about that. It's... Um, you meet these guys on the ground. There's, it's all jo- you know, handshakes, jovial. Oh, I love how you do this. I love how you do that. So, there's no. I've never in my three and a half years, and I met most teams really that you would think of in terms of who we dealt with. So the Italians, the French, uh, the Americans have got the uh, Thunderbirds and the Blue Angels. You, you tend to help each other out more than mm. battle against each other because your shows are so different. You do your talking in the sky, and because no one can win a medal or be crowned the best, what you do is you leave an impression on people's mind who they think are the best so clearly when you taxi out at these big air shows and you can see these other teams all lined up like the heartbeats are running because you think right it's it can be and this sounds awful but like me growing up before i knew what the reds are about if you go to an air show and watch the red arrows fly you i would say you would tend to be impressed even though you don't really understand much about the flying so there might be a really technical uh, maneuver that you've completely missed and gone, oh, it's actually, that's quite boring. Whereas a pilot will look at that and go, oh my goodness, like, have you seen what they've just done with that jet? You know, because that's, that's just the, the nature of the beast when you know what you're talking about. So we would go out to impress the knowledgeable. That was what we held ourselves to. It's like those people who find those different teams. We want the French team, the America team, the Croatian team to leave these air shows and go, shit, the Brits are pre- pretty good. Like we need right. to up our game. So that was it really. It was more of a, you know, so you could give someone a knowing head nod and say that we've just smashed that out of the park and it was there would be nothing worse, for example, to putting on a red instead of a blue in front of the French or the Americans. Oh my uh, days! You just you would probably just 
divert to another. You didn't airfield. do that though, did you? I, I didn't. Luckily, no. no not quite. <laughs> so, so the Americans would have pretty decent kit, wouldn't they? The Americans are awesome. Yeah, they've um, again very different show. It depends what you're into. So our, uh, you know, the Red Arrows will fly for 20, 22 minutes in old school jets, but very tight formations. They'll they will move shapes in front of your face to show timing, precision, teamwork, those kind of things. So we would want to show you that we can everything you would think the Air Force is great for. The British, um, you know, the armed forces are great for when we go abroad. What the Brits are great for when we go and export Great Britain all around the world. We try and surmise that in our display, and you know, and that's quite it's quite an arty way to do it, I guess. But you know, it's to show that. We're flying an airplane that's survived 40 years and can still do this. We've got Rolls-Royce engines in them. We've got British pilots doing British shows and everything kind of has an undercurrent of what the Brits are about. So that's what we try and do. When you go to America, yeah, they've got frontline jets. They've got the F-16, which is a frontline US fighter. They've got the F-18, which is um, this the jet that's going to be used in the new Top Gun film, actually. Oh, really? So, yeah, that's what the US Navy display team use. So you know, that would be like us taking nine typhoons or you know 150 million pound airplanes and doing air shows with them it it probably doesn't fit into our culture to do that our, our aircraft uh, the hawks are quite cheap but what the americans have is they've got the latest and greatest so what they do is they go around the world showing everyone how great their their military might is and look at these awesome airplanes how loud they are how so american it is very <laughs> I, I, honestly it, as i say we do 22 minutes and it's just silent as in like we don't do anything we just there's no music or anything like that it's just just watch us. Uh, the Americans, yeah, they've got like Green Day slamming out. They've got all this like epic uh, rock music just being blasted out. And for 40 minutes, they just essentially attack the sh- the attack the crowd, which some elements are great. But after about 30 minutes of like your eardrums bursting, you're like, honestly, guys, give it a break. <laughs> give it a break. And, and I don't want to play them down because, you know, again, please Google the, the Blue Angels, you know, the Navy team. They are insane with how close, much closer than... I would even want to fly, let alone have the ability to fly. But what they'll do is they'll disappear out of sight, get themselves into a shape, settle down, and they'll come come through. So again, incredibly impressive, incredibly tight, incredibly close. I don't want to take anything away from them, but they won't move into a different shape normally in, in front of you. So they'll go for 45 minutes, and there'll be like five-minute gaps, and you're like, are they done? Are they coming back? What's going on? And, yeah. and that, it works for them. It works for the American crowd, and it works for them because then they can, you know, America down the down the line in these F-18s. You might see videos online. They're so low that they're kicking up the water in the sea behind them. You know, that kind oh, of that's stuff. that's cool. It is super cool. Yeah. If we did that, I mean, we'd be kicked out of the Air Force in about... <laughs> te- like, before you landed, you wouldn't have a job. Do you know what I mean? But yeah. it's just very different. Yeah. Um, it's like on Top Gun with a um, buzz the tower. You can't buzz the tower, can you? No, you can't. But no. No, we don't even have... We don't even have call signs. That's how British we are and boring oh, I was going to ask you that. You don't have yeah. call signs? No, we just put a Y on the end of everyone's name. So lazy or... Yeah, so that's actually quite name. cool. It's that's yeah, that's actually you can. I mean, there's a couple. Yeah. We had one guy who um, there's some good ones. I think the Brits are just a bit different. We had one one dude who never went out, so we called him the Olympic Flame. Um, and there's just <laughs> stuff like that. You know, if there's a set, if you've fallen foul of something, then you get it. But it just tends to be Dan Losey. We're, we're very British, and you go and work with the Americans. Like, hey man, I'm Thumper. It's like, oh, that's cool. It's like, <laughs> what do you go by? You're like, uh. Dan, actually. Yeah, hey, I'm Dan. And they're like, oh, okay. And they just walk off. It's just like on the movie. It's just like, honestly, they, they, and they've got some great names. So they, they have to, their names, they have to pass the grandma test, you know? So um, you have to be able to tell your mum, you know, I'm called uh, Hammer because I hit every target, but 
actually it's because his squadron know that he nails everything that moves and so yeah. it's like there's there's like the bro name but it's got to have the grandma test to it you know whereas yeah and they and they are super cool yeah they jump out the jets they've got their chewing tobacco in the rock over and they're like hey man how's he doing oh, it's so good to see brit you know i'm i don't know evil you're like <laughs> awesome i'm dan <laughs> <laughs> you just feel so small. So like, okay, I'll, I'll catch you later. <laughs> oh, nice. With your with the red arrows, uh, um, am I right in saying like for navigation, it's pretty, pretty pretty old school as well. Like, oh, it is yeah, and that's what I honestly that's why I love it so much. It is old school. You know, you have one pilot planet, all be on a computer, but you print the maps out. You know, you when you're taking off, you don't. There's no we in in aviation. It's called a glass cockpit. You know, where your maps are actually in the jet or there's none of that. It's all old school dials and, and bells and whistles in, yeah. in, in, a, in a Hawk. So you've got this little GPS thing that you, you can bolt onto the front that's got your route in uh, and that can, you can have some rough timings, but it doesn't take into account wind. So it could say that you're on time and you turn right into a headwind. And obviously if you've got headwinds, then it's blowing you away from where you mm. need to be. So now you're late all of a sudden. So you, you got to mentally think of all that and you've got to sit down with paper and the rest of the team will literally just have a bit of paper folded underneath their leg and when they need it, look at and there's and the other thing is there's no like there's no timing in the jet it's all uh off a stopwatch so when we line up for takeoff the boss goes red's rolling now and at the end of now everyone clicks their stopwatch and when the stopwatch says seven and a half minutes that's like, all right seven and a half minutes there should be uh a lake with a you know with a forest near it and you look up and go oh there's a lake with a forest i need to come right zero six zero so you do it all off what a paper map says at what time you should be there after takeoff jeez it's primitive it's very primitive but it's was it's it, uh satisfying wasn't there an incident um we got into a bit of strife uh on your way back from the usa oh right yeah yeah that was that was quite a big one actually so it so the jets let's say old we've only got one engine so, you know, most airliners, if an engine fails, it's fine because they can keep themselves in the sky with the other one. If we lose our engine, there's only one place you're going and that's, that's down pretty quick. So crossing the Atlantic, as you can imagine, is quite a treacherous thing to do anyway. Uh, being the Hawk, it can only do about 600 miles at a time uh, and the Atlantic is a couple thousand. So what we had to do is um, on our way home, we actually uh, stopped at a place called Goose Bay on the east coast of Canada. We were, the plan was to go up to Greenland, into Iceland, Scotland and then back to the UK. So um that was all going fine but we took off this one morning out of greenland quite early and we're heading east and there's a line on our map that if you go past it that's it you have to commit to your destination now where we were going only had one runway there was no diversion and the taxiways were too short that you couldn't even land on them you, you would get there with about 15 minutes of fuel before you had to find somewhere to eject um and so it was quite it it concentrated the mind quite a lot that so okay. this line was a big thing for us anyway we took off uh and there was reports coming in that the weather where we were going wasn't great so okay fine but let's just go and so off we went I and mean, as we as we crossed the coast like was, we're flying over icebergs and stuff you think right, if my engine quits now it's going to be very very cold for for quite a while until someone can come and find me so off we pressed and as we're getting closer of this is why communication and effective communication is so important and it, it, say, it saves lives, it saved our lives. Uh, and so we were getting these reports coming through that the weather was starting to come in. Oh, okay, fine, we'll keep going. It still sounds okay. And then I'm not, I'm, I, no word of a lie, as our nose cones were hitting this line on the map where if we crossed it, we didn't have enough fuel to get back and we had had to have carried on. We got a call to say that it was, it was 50 feet in fog and there was no way of landing. So had had that call come another five minutes later ten minutes later we, we'd have been in a 
a tricky situation. Shit. Yeah, we had no fuel to go anywhere else. So, um, which sounds like, oh, why didn't you plan that? No, that's all fine. It's got signed off. You know, we, we, the plan was hit that line, come back um, and get that report. But as you can imagine, that part of the world, satellite communications, we were trying to make a radio call to another jet, which had a satellite phone that was going obviously via satellite to someone on the ground there. Or we had the uh, transport airplane circling overhead, looking at the runway, seeing this, this fog come in. And these people were making real life, you know, on time decisions going, nah, we should probably turn around. And, and luckily they made that call. And as we hit that line, we got the call to turn back, which is, which is, which was super lucky, but it just meant then that for the next week we had to go all the way up into the, we went to this place called Kangalusak, which is up in the Arctic circle, about minus 15, dropped the jets off there. Uh, I mean, this place had a uh, polar bear alarm for when they have polar bears on the Great. airfield, which is pretty cool. Uh, and then yeah, into Iceland and then back. So yeah, it was, uh, it was, it was quite treacherous. You know, these jets are so old and they're brilliant but it just shows you, you know, we can fly them in the desert or we can fly them in 40 50 degree heat over karachi one year and you know the next year we can take 15 of them and put them in the arctic circle and they don't skip a beat they're, they're just awesome well you've got a day job now so we better wrap this up and uh, you, you never know when you're going to get the call to go and fly your private jet but thank you very very much for joining me dan and uh, all the best mate it's been an absolute pleasure thank you for inviting me and uh, i wish you all the best in the future thanks mate what a legend. If you enjoyed that, there's plenty more to come with former Special Forces soldier and Who Dares Win star Ollie Ollerton joining me in a couple of weeks, as well as explorer Molly Hughes. But next week, it's John Chambers and his incredible story, A Belfast Child. So make sure you've subscribed so you get it as soon as it's released. And if you enjoyed this episode, I'd love it if you left a review on iTunes or wherever you've listened. 